This episode is brought to you in part by the Breathe Life Bible. The Breathe Life Bible invites readers to put their faith in action as the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, to address issues of justice with biblical truth, and to be gospel-driven changemakers in pursuit of God's vision of a community where all people are valued and cared for. Learn more at breathelifebible.com. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping your world. I'm Mike Cosper. I'm the director of CT Media. With me, as always, is Russell Moore, CT's editor-in-chief. Today, Ryan Burge is going to talk to us about some new data showing a decline in church attendance since 2016 and explore why that's happening. Then, Rachel Den Hollander is going to join us to talk about recent events in the SBC related to the sexual abuse crisis. And then finally, Russell and I are going to talk about the coronation of King Charles and what the significance of that event is for Christians over here. All right, joining us now is Ryan Burge, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Eastern Illinois University. He's also the Research Director for Faith Counts. Ryan, thanks for joining us on The Bulletin. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so this week you published on your Substack a newsletter. The title was, Did the Election of Donald Trump Drive People from the Pews? The Impact of MAGA on Young Gen X and Older Millennial Democrats. And this is an analysis, I believe it's from the Cooperative Religion Survey, is that correct? Cooperative election study, yeah. Yeah, so we, we actually looked at, funnily enough, we looked at this last week on a different topic altogether. But we'll link that in the notes. And, you know, the point of your piece is trying to map the extent to which the rise of Donald Trump had any impact on church attendance. I want to mention a couple of things before we dive into this. And, Russell, feel free to tag on this as, as makes sense. But I'm pretty sensitive to the reality that anecdotal evidence is not data, right? That the stories I'm hearing reflect more about the world that I occupy than anything about the world at large. But in my circles, I've heard from lots of folks who I grew up with, who I've gone to church with, that have grown disillusioned with the church because of the state of American politics and the rise of Trump. And I'm always wondering to what extent this just reflects the world I live in, or if there is a larger discontent happening, a larger disconnect happening. So as I read the article this week, and and maybe you can get into even just describing a little bit of your findings, I found it fascinating. I found it important because of the ways it does seem to mirror some of my experience. Yeah. I mean, listen, I was born in 1982, so I'm a very old millennial. My brother's Gen X, so we kind of all fit in that little pocket of time. And I came of age in the 1990s in a Southern Baptist church, which, if you look at the data, was the height of evangelicalism in America. It's actually a really weird time to be an evangelical because there were 30% of the population and the nuns were rising at the same time. So there's a culture war thing going on. And so I'm always trying to figure out what in the world happened to me. You know, like, how did I grow up? Was it different than people before me or after me? And so what the post is really about is me trying to kind of coalesce around this conclusion that the social science is arriving at, which is that politics, it might not be the only thing driving people from American religion. But it's definitely one of the most prominent things driving people from American religion. And if you look at the data, the thing that really struck me is if you look at Democrats specifically and you track them by birth cohort, which are five-year windows, let's say being born between 1980 and 1984 or 1985 and 1989. If you look among Democrats, the people who were leaving the pews 
was fairly flat between like 2008 and 2016. I mean, they were go- they were leaving religion a little bit, but if you look, especially if you were born between 1975 and 1984. 2016 is an inflection point, and those trend lines are pretty flat until then, and they start shooting up around the election of Donald Trump. And you know the conclusion that you have to draw is what happened in 2016. I mean, there's really one punctuated equilibrium event, and that was the election of Donald Trump. And I think a lot of people like me who grew up evangelical and are probably still sympathetic to Christianity, still maybe go to church every once in a while, go, you know what? That's the last straw for me. I could be an evangelical if it was about being a George Bush evangelical, let's say. But this whole MAGA thing is a bridge too far, and I think the people who are even slightly right of center, everyone to the left of that saw MAGA and goes, no, if that's what American evangelicalism is and American Christianity is, then I don't want any part of that. And I think it cleaved the Democrats, and it really kind of created this wedge between moderate – You know, moderate Democrats are now non-religious when they used to be religious 10, 15 years ago. Ryan, what do you think will be the influence on particular issues? I mean I I remember being at the March for Life – sometime during the Trump administration with Trump there and saying to people, what are you doing just in terms of this issue? If you look at millennials and Gen Z, the approval rating of Donald Trump, and we're trying to convince them (laughs) to have a pro-life ethic, it seems really, really counterproductive to me, even apart from anything else that I think about Trump or Trumpism. Where do you think that some of this reaction is going to take us in terms of the specific culture war kinds of issues. Well, I think the, the battle for gay marriage is over. You know, I think that's been exceedingly clear over the last, you know, three or four since Obergefell, basically. There was some data from 2007 where people asked, what do you think your church feels about homosexuality? Not you personally, but what do you think your church feels about it? And amongst evangelicals, 66% said they completely forbid it in 2007. And then data from 2020 said only 33% of evangelicals thought their church forbid it. I don't think that's because pastors got up on the pulpit and said, it's okay to be gay. Gay marriage is fine. What happened is they stopped talking about it. And when you stop talking about it, I think that kind of gives tacit permission to people in the pews to go, oh, it's okay, because it's not been explicitly prohibited by my religious institution or pastor. And I think what that's what you're going to see with a lot of these kind of culture war issues. I think the next issue is transgender. And I wonder if that becomes like a gay marriage issue, right, where it takes a while for it to really pick up steam, and then all of a sudden it changes within like a span of five years. Everything's different. I think abortion's different, though, for a couple of reasons. If you look at abortion opinion over the last 50 years, it's really stable. You know, The share of Americans who are pro-life, pro-choice doesn't change much, but I think Dobbs upsets all our understanding of public opinion around the issue of abortion. And you're seeing a really hard left shift in abortion opinion, even amongst moderates over the last two or three years, because they see what's happening in places like Florida with a six-week abortion ban in other states, 12 other states are in that same boat going, listen, I don't love abortion, but that's not me. Like, I'm not at that stage. And so I think where we have that fight is where a lot of – this is where the Republican Party, I think, has is, is, is got a problem. Because DeSantis, right, is six-week abortion ban really hard right, and Trump comes in and goes, ah, states' rights issue. So I think that's where you're going to see like this cleaving of younger evangelicals is over how do you deal with the issue of abortion? I think for gay stuff, that's not even on the radar. But for abortion, I think that becomes center stage again because Dobbs brought it up to the top of the pile again. And what, Ryan, do you think is the difference? I have my theories, but you mentioned George W. Bush evangelicals. There was, of course, a lot of politicization around Republican politics for a long time, but there weren't heresy trials in terms of people in which the loyalty to that 
personality and candidate meant a test for orthodoxy the way that the Trump years did. What changed? I think what we're seeing is we're seeing the, the purification rites happening on both sides, of the, on the left and the right. And if, I mean, obviously, you know, Russell, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention has spent the last five years trying to drive out anyone who's just slightly right of center and make them a, a horrible communist leftist. But you see it on the left, too, right? You're seeing anyone who does not think that transgender should be accepted, you know, allowing hormone replacement therapy for seven-year-olds, you're going to commit genocide amongst transgender people. Right. One of my favorite illustrations of that is what's happened in the last two weeks over abortion. So Florida passed the six week ban, which is an extreme view. I think that's I mean, politically is an extreme way to think about abortion. But on the left, there was a whole social media campaign with the hashtag shout your abortion, which was to be like, I'm proud of having an abortion. And I think a lot of people look at that and go, what in the world is going on? Like, I'm not for a six week abortion ban, but I'm also not for removing the stigma on abortion either. And so I think what you're seeing is the far left and the far right, especially in the social media echo chambers, are trying to purify themselves. And there's a lot of people going, well, I'm a Democrat, but I'm not that kind of Democrat, or I'm a Republican, but I'm not that kind of Republican. And I wonder if a candidate can exist on either side now that can make the base happy and, and navigate a primary, which is really difficult, but also not make the center left and center right people want to throw up when they go in the voting booth on election day. I think that kind of candidate, it's a unicorn to do both those things at one time, to not make the base mad, but also bring mm -hmm. the moderates in. But in this moment that we're in right now, I think a candidate on the left or the right can really be transformational when it comes to American politics. Well, and it seems like, you know, people always talk about how part of the way Biden won in 2020 was like the basement strategy, you know, because of COVID, he, he stayed home. But also he seemed to run without paying a whole lot of attention to what was going on online, where the online pressure was all to push left and to look like Bernie Sanders and to go as far in that direction as he possibly could. He just kind of ignored that noise. Now he's governed in a different way, but he mostly ignored that noise. And I think that the thing that makes me wonder when I hear these kinds of stories is to what extent is there a pathway for someone, even in these primaries, when these issues are becoming more and more important and more and more top of mind for people, is there a way to be <laughs> sane, so to speak, on either party and run through that middle lane? Or are we simply in a place where because of gerrymandering and everything else, the online base really is that, like, are they really truly that powerful that, they're, that they've crowded out the lane? think on the right, they are. So here to me is the most important moment that happened over the last couple of elections, right? So Trump begins to win primaries and caucuses early on. The rest of the Republican field does not coalesce around one candidate and make it a head-to-head -head fight, right? What they should have done is the Rubios and the Kasichs and the Cruises should have come together and said, okay, we can't beat you with 12%, 14%, and 22%. We need to all combine forces and try to beat Trump head-to-head. -head. You know what the Democrats did? As soon as Biden got that lead early on with South Carolina, you saw Klobuchar drop out. You saw Buttigieg drop out. You saw the rest of the field basically go, OK, we know who our candidates, besides Bernie, we know who our candidate's going to be. Let's throw all our weight behind that person because Biden is not Bernie. Bernie will not win the general, and Biden will. So I will give the Democrats points on this. They figured out who their moderate candidate was, the most likely to win a general, and they threw all their money and all their support behind one. The Republicans waited too long in the process, and I think that's how what got you Trump. If Trump loses in 16, we're not talking about Trump today. Because he was the president, now he casts a pall until he dies, honestly, or goes away. He's going to, in fact, you know, impact the electoral process. So I think that was a critical error that the Republican Party did. And I think they're going to make the same error again, by the way. I don't think they can coalesce around one non-Trump candidate. 
who will come even close. Maybe it's DeSantis, but I don't think DeSantis beats Trump in these primaries. And by the way, primaries drive out really hardcore ideologues on both sides. And Trump's base is really energized much more than I think a candidate like DeSantis can can get his base, you know, ginned up and ready to go. Ryan, there was a Democratic political strategist who ran a presidential campaign who said to me one time, Democrats only win with a person who is comfortable in a South Carolina African-American church. And you can look at, in every case, a candidate who has a sense of disease in that sort of environment has always won. What does the sort of secularization sorting that, that you're seeing in this data, what does that do to the African-American vote particularly and to the Democratic Party? I'll give you a staggering statistic. In, in 2020, 45% of Biden voters were atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. 45% of Biden voters are nuns. Mm. And I think there's a very good chance by 2024, but definitely by 2028, that it's half. At least half of all Democrat voters are going to be non-religious. I think the Democratic Party has a really difficult problem when it comes to religion because you got to think about this, right? Take the Equality Act, which is something that was kind of bandied around for a while. It's kind of fallen off the radar. It was an act that basically said that it, you know, that, that no institution can can discriminate against you based on your sexual orientation or your gender identity, which practically means that churches couldn't fire people for coming out as gay or trans. Like the pastor, you couldn't fire a pastor for being trans. Obviously, Black Protestants don't like that. They don't want the government telling them who can be their pastor. Atheist agnostics love that. How are you going to square that circle going forward, right, where half your base is saying, we want the Equality Act, but then you still got your Hispanic Catholics and your Black Protestants and your Muslims and your Hindus and your Buddhists who are, you know, think religion should take some supremacy in public life and, and really, you know, over the government. How do you pass laws that the atheist agnostics want, who are very loud, by the way, 50% of atheists gave money to a candidate or campaign in 2020, 50%. You know what it was amongst white evangelicals? 26%. So atheists mm. are much more politically engaged, and they're pushing the Democrats mm. for something like the Equality Act. And they're going, wait, 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 but we need to win in South Carolina. <laughs> like, we need to win the Muslim vote. We need to win the Hispanic Catholic vote. And we're, we can't do both those things at the same time. I think the Republican Party's problem is white Christianity, they got one note. It's white Christianity is good. The problem with that is white Christianity is dying in America, so their base is getting smaller. So I think both parties have a problem. I think the Democrats' problem is how do you keep everyone under the big tent? And I think right now it's don't talk about it. Kick it down the road as long as you possibly can, but eventually you're not going to be able to. Here's a question for you, Russ. I, I'm wondering, do you think the way we talked about religion in church changed in 2016 significantly? Because I can look back, I mean – you know, people often talk about Bill Bishop's book, The Big Sort, you know, the 2008 book that talked about the way America was sorting into these homogeneous communities. I'm actually in that book. <laughs> he came and interviewed me about our church sojourn and how we had created a little bit of sort of a small expression of diversity in our community. And what's interesting, I always think about it because I wonder, like, how would that look now if we really got into the weeds of my own community now? And I don't know that it's actually changed that much, but I think part of the reason that it hasn't changed that much is there's a lot of resistance from political conversation from the stage. I mean, we talk mm -hmm. about life issues. We talk about, mm -hmm. you know, gender and marriage issues generally. But you would, I mean, I don't think anyone has ever misused the idea of, you know, if our nation would humble themselves and pray and made it a sermon about America. Did that change more broadly in 2016, the imperative of you got to beat Hillary Clinton, you got to vote for Trump? 
you know, create a different kind of incentive for preachers. I, I think even with the churches that would have been heavily politicized, I can think of a pastor in the 2004 election who stood up and was talking about, you know, we're not going to talk about specific candidates, but you need to support a candidate who, <laughs> and he gave a list of issues with a picture projected of George W. Bush on the wall, and then said, and you need to oppose candidates who, and with a picture of John Kerry projected on the wall. I mean, so that was that was there. But what, yeah, it was subtle. But what you what you ended up having in 2016, I think, is a much heightened sort of apocalyptic catastrophism. This is the last presidential election you'll ever survive if you don't do the right thing, along with an effort to really retaliate against people who weren't on board or who weren't adequately on board. I mean, so so I think that's different. Do either of you have a sense when you talk about that? kind of an enforcement mechanism, right? Like the pressure. Some of that's just the personality of Trump. He kind of demands that in the way he communicates and the way that he projects. Um, if he goes away, does that change? I'm in the pulpit every Sunday, right? So I preach every Sunday. And the one thing you realize we're doing it for a long time is, man, you have no legal protection as a pastor. <laughs> you can be fired for any reason. Mm -hmm. What color tie you wore, what your kids said in Sunday school, you know, like what your wife did last weekend. And so what, you know, I think a lot of pastors are just cowards because they don't want to get fired, which listen, I get it. I don't want to get fired either. So what they do is they kind of tr try to pick the least controversial way. And that's why you hear a ton of sermons like four ways to be a better father or three ways to be a better parent, because no one's going to get mad at you saying like spend more time with your kids. What they're going to get mad at you about is talking about issues like everybody matters to God, including illegal immigrants. So I think, you know, and there's data that backs this up, by the way. We ask people, like, over the last 12 months, have you heard any of these issues in a Sunday sermon? There are like 15 issues, everything from immigration, health care, right. mm -hmm. voting, you name it. And you know what the plurality answer was? None of the above. Like 30% of people looked at the whole list of 15 and go, nope, didn't hear any of that. And only half the people had heard one issue or zero in the last 12 months. So, you know, the idea that, like, the pulpit is politicized, I think, is absolute bunk. I think the vast majority of churches, even during an election season, you will not hear anything even close to an overt political reference, especially to these non-denominational churches, right, that are growing rapidly. And the reason they're growing rapidly, they're growing in the suburbs. And the suburbs are politically diverse. Like they're not red. They're not blue. They're kind of purplish. Uh, Michael Jordan was asked one time, why is he not more political? And he said, because Republicans buy sneakers, too. And I think a lot of these non-denom pastors are like, you know, well, why would I talk about politics from the pulpit when – half my suburban audience is probably going to vote for Biden or vote for Trump. Why would I turn half of them off? Because my goal is growth. That's our whole reason detra, right? To like to continue to get more people in the pews. So why would I segment my audience that way? So I think the people you see on TV and hear about and read about on Twitter represent the outlier on an average Sunday. Yeah, but where I'm seeing the real crisis for pastors right now, specifically with those non-denominational suburban sorts of pastors who are doing exactly what you say, but are getting hit from either a small group of the right, usually in most cases, or of the left, who are willing to, your silence is deafening, sometimes on things that are just completely ridiculous. I mean, I just talked to a pastor this week who his silence is deafening on the World Health Organization attempt to some crazy conspiracy theory, and it just hits and hits and hits. And those are the folks who are getting hit with it because uh, they don't have a completely sorted out sort of congregation. It's just not working to try to avoid the issues anymore. Really, the sad assumption there, Russell, is you want your congregation to be politically echo chambered. 
at that point. Like it, it, life is easier if you're all liberals or all conservatives. You don't have to deal with trying to hit both sides. You can keep hitting the same notes over and over again every Sunday, and you're going to get famous right. doing that. But I think like right. that's what that's the worst thing yeah. that's happened to religion. So if you look at the data over the last 50 years, it used to be the more you went to church, the more you trusted people, interpersonal trust, right? Like I think yeah. other people can be trusted. But over the last 10 years, you know what's happened? The more you go to church, the less trusting you are of other people. I think one of the reasons for that is because we purified the church in such a way that you don't see anyone who's outside your the big sort, right, Bill Bishop? You don't see anyone outside your political milieu. So you don't know wow. any Democrats. You don't know any – I don't know. You know, like you get, you get stuck in these little bubbles, and you don't realize that church did not used to be that way. And I think from a social science perspective, that's really bad. Like the churches are so homogenized now. We were a lot better off when you had Democrats and Republicans sitting in the pew every Sunday, and the pastor did not feel compelled to talk about politics at all from the pulpit. Okay, so historical trend lines like this are just that. They're trends. You know, you're living in the worlds of charts and graphs and numbers, looking at this stuff all the time. Is there anything that you've seen or that you're seeing that could offer any direction or that offers you any hope in, in terms of how these negative trends might reverse or how evangelicals can respond to some of these things? So the nuns have sort of plateaued. Like the youngest nuns, used to be the line just went up and up and up every successive birth year, just be one or 2% more than the prior birth year. But if you look like the last five years of data, it goes up and up and up and it hits about people born, you know, they're 23, 24 now. And that line just sort of flattens off. So I, I do think we've sort of seen the worst of it, like the worst of it's over now. I always tell people we're never going to get to a point in America where 60, 70 percent of Americans say they have no religious affiliation. I think we get to a point where it's like 50 percent probably. And then the, re the other 50 percent is like a, a weird ma amalgam of like evangelicals and traditional Catholics and Orthodox Jews and Muslims and Latter-day Saints and all these kind of groups. So I think that's what the future of America looks like. But I'll give you a caveat to that, and that is that if you look at the youngest people, 18 to 25, Women are more likely to be nuns today, religious nuns today, than men are, which is the first time we've ever seen this in polling data. It's just a truism that women are more religious than men. It's always been that way, like going back to the 1970s. And amongst the youngest people, we're seeing that men are more likely to be religious than women. And I think that is a really important thing we need to think about. Like what caused that, right? Is that the Driscoll effect? I wonder if that's the Driscoll effect. It's like the UFC Christianity, like the masculine Jesus thing, brought wow. men back but pushed women away. So I think we got to be really careful about like for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And for every way we, we, we create Jesus, we push some people away and bring some people in. We just got to make sure we're not pushing more people away than we're bringing in. I think a lot of the tactics a lot of pastors have used have probably been net negative in terms of overall religious adherence in this country. Monster trucks and MMA. There was a big men's conference just a couple of weekends ago. Uh, people who want to see it can find it online. So, well, hey, Ryan, thank you so much. This is a fascinating article. We'll link it in the show notes. It's fascinating work and very clarifying, I think, to the challenges to the witness of the church. So thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. We'll be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. 
If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so joining Russell and I for this next conversation is Rachel Den Hollander. Rachel is an attorney and an advocate for sexual abuse survivors. She was the whistleblower in the sexual abuse scandal involving Larry Nasser and USA Gymnastics. And she's the author of the book, What is a Girl Worth? My Story of Breaking the Silence and Exposing the Truth about Larry Nasser and USA Gymnastics. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I've really looked forward to it. So after a 14-month recruitment and search process, the Southern Baptist Convention had a vote for the new president of the executive committee. The nominee was a pastor from Texas named Jared Wellman, and the vote went down, and it was a big surprise to followers of the SBC. For context, this is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. It accounts for nearly 50,000 churches, 13 million members, and the executive committee really runs the denomination, and we'll talk a little more about that in a second. But for broader context even, since 2018, the SBC has been embroiled in controversy surrounding its handling of sexual abuse. Wellman was among the SBC leaders who had advocated for an independent and transparent investigation into this history. And he'd really been seen as a trusted voice by parties kind of throughout the process, especially advocates and survivors. But his candidacy was rejected in a 31 to 50 vote by members of the committee. So this actually starts the whole process over. It leaves the interim president in place. Now, you know, full disclosure here, Russell, you're part of this story because of your previous role at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. This is a big Southern Baptist entity. Rachel, you've been a part of this as an advocate and directly involved in helping to guide a process and lead towards that investigation. And you've both experienced the opposition very directly and criticism very directly by those who were resisting transparency along the way. So let's start here, actually. Rachel, as someone who's been involved in this and as a victim advocate, both inside and outside the SBC, why does this story matter to people who aren't even part of the Southern Baptist Convention? I think because a lot of it really does boil down to um, regaining community trust and what that looks like. The SBC has been through an incredibly different, difficult time period in the last several years, uh, following the Houston Chronicle expose on just the massive amount of sexual abuse and particularly the mishandling of sexual abuse taking place at the denomination. And that sparked a number of other significant disclosures, which uh, wound up sparking an independent investigation of the SBC's executive committee, specifically related to their handling of sexual abuse allegations, their treatment of sexual abuse survivors, resistance to abuse reforms that were taking place. And what that investigation really did is lift the veil on what was really taking place in the denomination's leadership. And one of the things that really came out of that was that power had really been centralized in a couple of key positions. And that those individuals in the executive committee in particular, partly their legal counsel and, and administrative leaders, were able to really, for many years, keep things very quiet, keep resistance to reform very quiet, stonewalling survivors and keeping that very quiet. And so what the SBC has been engaged in in the last year following the release of that report is an effort towards reform 
towards transparency and towards regaining community trust. And Jared Wellman was really a leader over the last several years in that issue. And so watching how that has unfolded, I think, says a lot about where the convention is at and about the steps that need to happen going forward. And I think it's shaken a lot of people. And the reason that this really matters outside of the denomination is because the SBC is not unique in the crisis that it's facing. We have seen sexual assault crises happening in the ACNA, in the PCA, in a number of other denominations across the country and religious organizations across the country. But the SBC is such an important player in American evangelicalism that the way they handle this going forward is either going to become a template for other denominations to follow or is going to assist in a continued pattern of unhealth. Russ, to you, tell us a little bit about specifically this role. Why is this role such a significant position? And was this a surprise to you when the vote came down? Well, this was a stunning. And I don't think people who are sort of outside of the Southern Baptist world can really understand just how unprecedented this is. I cannot think of a, a situation in all of Baptist history where a, a search committee has brought a nominee and that nominee then lost the vote, much less to this wide of a vote. It really is a test of the emergency broadcast system for a Southern Baptist Convention meeting in New Orleans where a lot is at stake and a lot can go wrong. And what concerns me in all of this is that, I mean, on the one hand, I actually texted Jared Wellman and said, I only in a very limited sense, am sorry that you've had to go through this. I think you're going to look back and see May the 1st, 2023 as one of the greatest days of your life because <laughs> this would have been awful. And that's there's a Southern Baptist cultural moment right now which destroys people and destroys particularly those who don't want to simply demagogue and to protect the status quo. And so you end up losing person after person after person after person. You just go through the entire list and then you're left with a denomination where most of the people, I think, want to do the right thing. I mean, I think the vast majority of people want to do the right thing. They don't know what to do and they especially don't know what to do when there is is a militant group of people who want to, at all costs, oppose any kind of transparency and reform and integrity. And I just don't see a way out of that right now. The SBC Executive Committee presidency is a huge position in Southern Baptist life, partly because the Executive Committee has become far too powerful, far beyond Baptist ecclesiology or their own competence. And it has led to the crisis point that we're in right now and the lack of trust. And so I agree with Rachel, this isn't unique to SBC. You see this sort of institutional crisis going on all over uh, Christianity. What is unique is that for all of our problems, Southern Baptists have had a way of working through uh, problems in previous years that just doesn't appear to be here right now. And so when I see this and I look at, for instance, the backlash that is coming to a Guidepost as a potential outside firm helping the SBC to provide some sort of a database of vendors, especially when it's coming with, well, Guidepost, which is not a religious entity, it's not a part of the SBC, celebrated Pride Month just as do all of the servers that have the websites of every SBC entity, just as probably the convention center where the SBC is going to meet right now. 
but because of the way that that can be used, if they blow up this, I don't know what the plan B is. And in talking to people, I don't think anybody else knows either. Rachel, maybe you could get a little granular for us. What is the substance of the debate? What are the things that are being fought over, resisted? What are advocates asking for that people within the denomination don't want to provide or don't want to, you know, things that don't want to be opened up? Where's the lack of transparency showing up? In general, when it comes to abuse reform, there are a couple of different levels. There's massive distrust in the survivor and advocate camp, which I frankly share. While I am deeply grateful for the steps that the Southern Baptist Convention took with the independent investigation and the way that set up really was a template for other organizations, I think it was done very, very well. That being said, there's a very real sense in which it is too little too late, right? And there is still such a cultural toleration for abuse and abusive pastors that it makes it very difficult to begin rebuilding any kind of trust in the survivor community. And so you see a very valid criticism and concern coming from those who have been at the receiving end of this. Some of it relates to Baptist polity and just concern about leaving churches as the initial authority for doing the independent investigation that goes back to Southern Baptist polity. That's not going to change. Nobody's trying to change it. But there is concern among the survivor camp, and rightly so, that, you know, hey, we've had a lot of churches mishandle this. And if we are still leaving that power with churches, and they're the ones that we are relying on to be able to catch abusers, we've got a problem with the system we've set up. And then on the other side, you have a lot of resistance to reform. You have a lot of voices that do not want there to be any kind of authority in any way, shape, or form from the messengers or from the convention for simply making the determination that a church isn't in friendly cooperation or for placing a name on the database or for going beyond criminal convictions. That really kind of is the central discussion and the central pushback that's happening in the convention right now is really a group that just doesn't want to do anything. What's the justification for that? When somebody says, oh, no, I don't want the central database. I don't want I don't want the SBC to be able to kick anybody out. I don't. What's the justification? What's the argument there? So it's usually twofold, one of which centers around the idea of autonomy. We don't think that there should be any way to disfellowship a church over something like this because that violates Southern Baptist autonomy. Uh, now, the messengers clearly strongly disagreed with that last year when they passed this reform, but that's absolutely one of the pressure points being applied. Uh, and then another one that we are consistently seeing coming up is this concept of biblical justice. You know, if we are doing independent investigations and assessments, that's violating standards of biblical justice. And again, this was a major discussion last year. We had some excellent SBC attorneys, Matt Martins being one of them, who wrote a great article on biblical standards of justice and kind of looked at that theology. And the messengers were very clear that yes, we absolutely can and should pursue biblical justice in there. And, and biblical justice is not in opposition to taking these reform measures. But those tend to be the two central pressure points. Yeah. And the autonomy argument is a sham. And I say that as somebody who believes in church autonomy, but the people who are saying this are the very people who are the first in line to disfellowship a church for having a woman do too much in the church. But when it comes to this issue of preying upon innocent people and using the name of Jesus for destruction, then suddenly it becomes, oh, well, we're violating the autonomy of the churches. And I think another part of it is there is a mentality that says, there is no crisis. 
when it comes to sexual abuse. And a lot of the people who won't say this publicly will say this privately and say, ah, you know, our churches are safer than anywhere else. And so we're blowing this out of proportion. How you can say that after looking at that independent investigation last time, and how you can say that when person after person after person of us who said, these are the problems, they're then revealed to be completely the problems after we were called liars and everything else. Everyone just moves right on, not to mention the lives of the sexual abuse survivors that they have relentlessly targeted and destroyed. This is only going to change when the majority of people realize that in order to fix this, we're not going to be able to hide behind a notion of unity that says everybody's just going to be able to hold hands and get on board and we move on like we were before. That is not going to happen when you're dealing with this level of evil. And it also means looking at some really hard, hard things. I mean, when you look back for me, as somebody who is a biblical inerrantist, theologically conservative, Southern Baptist all of my life, to look back at the legacy of figures such as Paige Patterson and Paul Pressler, the rot, and the fact that so much of this was not about theology, but was in fact about power of the most Darwinian sort, it, things won't change until we actually look at that and see it for what it is. I think that takes a very high level of proactivity. And I think that's one of the things that the messengers have really struggled with is there has been such an implicit trust in leadership that there has been very little proactivity asking the right questions. Yeah, and I know the ARITF has really butted up against that this year. The average amount of time spent reading an ARITF update is approximately 18 seconds. That's not enough time to really be wrestling with the issues, to be digesting the information, to be thinking through the criticisms coming through the way of reform and being able to really weigh those and evaluate those and to be engaged as a messenger. It takes a high level of proactivity and responsibility to be able to overcome all of those dynamics that Dr. Moore identified. And that's really going to be up to the messengers. That's their responsibility. In many ways, this all really started to catalyze about five years ago. I believe that was the year that you held the Caring Well event, Russell, in Nashville. Rachel, you were a speaker at that event talking about sexual abuse survivors. Um, I believe that was also the same year that the Houston Chronicle report first published, which in a series of reports, they chronicled over 700 examples of sexual abuse inside the SBC. We're five years later. Have we made progress? Are you optimistic about the reforms and the direction of reform at this point? I'm hopeful about the fact that there are some really good and competent leaders who are concerned about this. Marshall Blaylock, who is chairing the committee, is brilliant and a person of integrity. There are many others I have confidence in. Bart Barber, who's the current SBC president, and, and many others. But I'm not very optimistic about it. And it goes back to the point that I made before. Until, I mean, I was planning to, at the 2020 Southern Baptist Convention, after all of these retaliatory efforts, these backroom knife fights that were going on, I plan to come to the 2020 Southern Baptist Convention and say, okay, here's what's going on. If this is what you want, you need to tell me now. And what that requires is going to be people who are willing to say, we're not going to let you do this to people within the SPC. We're not going to allow it to happen anymore. 
And the problem is when anyone says that, the immediate reaction is, oh, well, that's creating disunity. And so you have one faction able to do absolutely anything and people say, well, I mean, what are you going to do? Let's kind of give them a little bit of what they want. And everyone else who says, if we push back on this at all, then we're hurting missionaries because we're not all together and unified. And that is, I think, at the root of what makes this very, very difficult. And it's the clearest sign to me of a corrupt institution when people with power can demand character from those asking for reforms at a standard that they're not also living up to, right? That, oh, we need to preserve unity when from out of these systems, there's this incredibly destructive stuff happening in the lives of these victims. Rachel, any final thoughts five years in? How is your level of optimism for what comes next? I think it is a very mixed bag, to be honest. I was deeply encouraged by the independent investigation that the executive committee and the messengers put through and the force with which they put it through standing up and saying, no, we are going to tell the truth. We are going to find out the truth. The truth matters enough. That was a really critical step. And I think that was done very well. Whether or not the SBC is going to follow through on the reform is where it is getting much more difficult. Because I think Dr. Moore is absolutely right. We automatically hear concern and valid concern that, hey, we've got a lot of missionaries out there that we want to make sure we continue funding. Absolutely. But if you're going to be paying missionaries with cooperative program dollars, you better make sure those missionaries aren't raping kids while you're paying them with cooperative program dollars. We want all of the benefits of co-laboring and none of the responsibility of it. And everybody says that we hate sexual abuse and we hate child abuse, and we're going to hold to the biblical standards for pastors and for missionaries and for leaders. But the real test of how much you care is what you do when it starts to cost. Mm. And that's the pressure point that we're at right now in the SBC. What are we going to do when it starts to cost, when we have to take stands that are difficult, when we have to invest relational capital and political capital and financial capital to get these reforms through? Are we going to care enough? Are we going to be honest enough about the data and the process that we're facing to care enough? And I think that's where it's going to start getting continually difficult. I am encouraged by some of what I see. I think there is a real grassroots shift among a certain group of pastors to do things well. You can look at Broadmoor Baptist as an excellent example of how they have handled some of the abuse allegations that have taken place to the extent that they stood up and they said, we believe so strongly that these survivors should be able to speak freely, that if you abuse or if you come after them, if you try to sue them for breaching the NDA that you push them into, we will indemnify them. We will mm -hmm. defend them. That was an incredibly important step. I'm seeing more of that taking place at a grassroots level. I think that's encouraging. There are several state conventions that are invested in legislative efforts to criminalize clergy parishioner sexual relationships. That's really encouraging to me because they are taking a stand that's going to impact their own community. That's putting your money where your mouth is. That shows actual conviction, not just lip service. And so I do want to recognize that those shifts are taking place and that those are very good shifts. Whether or not those grassroots shifts are going to trickle upwards, whether or not the messengers are going to hold their own leadership accountable to invest the relational capital, the political capital, the financial capital, whether they're going to be willing to do the things that really need to be done when push comes to shove, I think that's a journey they're on and they're, it's going to be difficult. Well, Rachel, thank you for making time to join us here today and we will be right back. 
This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. So this weekend, Charles of Edinburgh will be formally ending his 71-year internship and be coronated as the new king of England. He assumed those duties about a year ago with the passing of Queen Elizabeth. So suffice to say, the royal family has been pretty radically transformed over the past century or so. You know, the queen's father became the king because his brother had to abdicate because he wanted to marry a divorced woman. Elizabeth becomes queen at 25. And I think it's like when she passed away last year, a lot of people were saying she was sort of one of the last great institutionalists of the West. And she really devoted her life to trying to preserve the dignity of the monarchy and the symbolism of the monarchy. And yet (laughs) she also ended up sort of overseeing controversy after controversy with her kids, particularly with Charles, a very public affair with Camilla Parker Bowles, the breakup of his marriage, the death of Princess Diana. So let me start here. I'm curious, very curious your answer on this. We've never talked about any of this before. Does any of this matter does, does it matter in England these days, and does it matter here to folks like you and me and, and our listeners? Well, I think the stuff that you just uh, talked about, I mean, you think about the popularity of the crown and, and programs like this, which is basically a higher class sort of soap opera that people are drawn into. And it's almost as though when you look back, real life was just a dress rehearsal for the crown. I mean, Mm. part of why people were so drawn to this story had to do with all of that. Are they going to stay together? Who's at fault for this? What are the kids going to do? Those sorts of questions. But I mean, I had to Google Before we had this conversation, it was, wait, when is the coronation? Is it Friday? Is it Saturday? (laughs) I mean, nobody, I mean, there wasn't Google, but nobody had to try to find out when the royal wedding of Charles and Diana was in whatever that was, 1981. So there is a diminishment there. And there also, it just looks so distant right now because there really is no distillation of cultural Christianity more than the British royal family and the relationship with the Church of England. And you look and you see a Church of England that is just almost gone. The structures are still there, but it's like a rapture of the church has taken Anglicans out of England and it's getting worse and worse all the time. So Mm -hmm. in that sense, it just looks really antiquated and out of step to a lot of people. 
Yeah, and it's I think there's an increasing and I you know you never know what these things if it's just is this just an online thing or is this a real thing? But it does seem like there's an increasing sort of disgust over the decadence of it yeah. all. You know, the degree to which the state is funding this multi-million dollar thing. He's going to have a crown on his head with I want to say it was something like half a billion dollars worth of jewels and and gold and all the rest of it. I mean, there's they they created their own emoji. The royal family rolled out yeah. a specific emoji for the coronation, which I wouldn't even know how to get it where I'd want to do it. But it is fascinating because it is, after I was reading this morning, part of my prediction is that the event itself is nonetheless very powerful and moving to the people that watch it. Because there is something about the symbols. There's something yeah. about the liturgies. There's something about all of that, that kind of hijacks cynicism in a way that often happens in churches and weddings and funerals and these different places where kind of the story told through the imagery and the, the ceremony and everything else does speak to something that we really want, which maybe gets back to what you were saying in the beginning, even in the soap opera nature of the way we watch the royals, we're wanting to hear and see a grand story of some yeah. sort. And, and every soap opera eventually runs aground. I mean, there, there's a reason, but they tried to bring back Dallas. It didn't work. I mean, yeah. there's, there's a natural sort of endpoint to it. And I have mixed feelings with this because I'm a James Madison Revolutionary War guy who grew up on Schoolhouse Rock, No More Kings. I'm not by any uh, sense a monarchist. The old, we have no king but Elvis, uh, <laughs> you know, just modify that, but Jesus and I'm there. But... I'm really worried uh, when I see the decadence of institutions. And when I look around at what's happening with the with the royal family, where it's not that the sort of Meghan Markle, Harry stuff is kind of at the periphery of a larger story, it really is the story in a lot of ways, even in England. And there's a sense of not knowing what the future is going to... I mean, think about how irrelevant the monarchy has been to, for instance, Brexit. The country is in a crisis turned against itself, and the monarchy has not been a stabilizing factor there. I worry about that, not because I think, oh, we need a really strong king, but because it tells me what's going on in a lot of other areas that are likewise. And I think when you see those things breaking down, cynicism becomes the default because there's nothing else to replace it. And then I think we end up with a situation when you end up with institutions that disappoint and fail so often, I think that has spiritual implications. I mean, we're watching a crown being put on someone that's really meaningless, and yet we sing crown him with many crowns. We, we are supposed to have some sense of what kingship means, and the decay of institutions means I don't think we do. One thing I thought about this morning is you know, people talk about the distinction between celebrity and fame. Yeah. And fame is something that comes about because of the deeds you've done or the positions that you hold, like the something about accomplishment and, and your place in the world. And celebrity is your ability to keep your name in the media and be celebrated. And, you know, you don't have to have accomplished anything to be a celebrity except capture the attention of the press. And what's interesting about the royal family is that those lines have been kind of blurred. Because as heads of this important state institution, as heads of these the monarchy, their fame, so to speak, is kind of built in. But the nature of the press, the nature of the paparazzi, 
really beginning with Princess Diana, who really knew how to manipulate, like she had mm-hmm. good instincts for how to capture the imagination of people as a celebrity, began to kind of blur those lines. And it feels like in the public feud between William and Harry and, and all the rest of it, it's this game where you don't quite know what to make of who these people are supposed to be. And part of it, I mean, the, the monarchy is not less than this, or is not more than, is more than this, but it's not less than this. It is in many ways a stand-in for patriotism and love of country. So there's a sense in which, I mean, when, I'm in England with, even just with evangelical Christians who who are far more diverse politically than American evangelicals tend to be. And they're all over the map politically. They disagree with each other on everything from Brexit to Boris Johnson to everything else, but they all revere the queen. And that becomes that point of commonality that when that's diminished or when that's lost, the question is what replaces it? If celebrity is what replaces it, that's just by nature ephemeral. I think that there's a sense of identity crisis in England and in many ways everywhere. And I just don't know what's coming next. I mean, it's like almost like a French revolution of celebrity has happened. <laughs> yeah. Someone made a joke about like, instead of bread and circuses, it's emojis and quiche. Cause there's this yeah. whole quiche thing. That's like the celebratory yeah. food. You know, I mean, on that front, I, I did think there were two things that struck me as especially interesting. One is that, you know, when, before the queen passed away, her sort of wishes for Camilla Parker Bowles was that her title would be queen consort, which indicates that she's sort of out of the line of succession and all the rest. And that was not a given that that would happen because she was, you know, his second wife. But in all the communication from the royal family in recent weeks, she's simply being referred to as the queen. And there's not been an official statement that that's her title, but I mean, that's the expectation. So that's a big shift. And then the second shift is that during the ceremony, witnesses to the ceremony are going to be asked to make this pledge where they say, I swear that I will pay true allegiance to your majesty and to your heirs and successors according to law, so help me God. That's new. That's not been a part of the ceremony, this sort of very outward expression of allegiance. And it's created no small amount of pushback from both inside the country and in the Commonwealth where this is going to be observed. It just struck me as funny. Like that's, it speaks to authority, the way we think about authority, that in a sense, the position he serves and that the role and that, you know, again, with the queen, you had this sense that in her role, she was providing a benefit to the country and she was embodying something in the country. And it's like, (laughs) I don't know anything about Charles's motivations or anything, but it's almost like as he takes the role, he's like, can we just goose that up a little bit yeah, so they really yeah. know I'm in charge? Yeah, if you have to say it, it's not true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you think about Queen Elizabeth's authority was a personal authority that seemed very much earned. Just as somebody who who got the country through everything from wars to COVID to, to everything else, I, I was uh, Nick Cave the uh, musician had to respond to people who were upset that he was going to the coronation. Are you a monarchist now? You're supposed to be a rock and roll rebel. And what would your younger self have thought about this? And he said, first of all, I don't care what my younger self thinks. My younger self was an idiot. 
which I think is true for a lot of us. But but he said, but secondly, he said he talked about meeting Queen Elizabeth and he said she seemed, he said, and I'm somebody not impressed with monarchy, but she seemed to literally glow. That there mm. was just something. Well, that was authority, and it was an authority where people could remember all of their life story. Queen Elizabeth is there to say, hey, we're England, we can get through this. That does carry a lot of weight. And we just have so few institutions or people who still retain that kind of authority right now. So let me ask you a question that comes from the other angle then. In the States right now, you have this sort of rising sentiment around nationalism, around Christian nationalism. Obviously, a monarchy is a very nationalistic idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In one of the more famous books that's been published in the last few years, it literally talks about the establishment of a sort of neo-monarchical Christian prince, I think is the language in this book that we need in the States. How do you juxtapose that impulse that has come about because of the populist movement and, and the the sort of populist fervor post Donald Trump. How do you locate that in relation to the flip side of it, which is this decadent monarchy that's on the decline in terms of its influence and stability? It is not a longing for actual monarchy and authority and unity. It's the reverse of that, because in an American context, these guys are always wanting to say, how do we thumb our nose at the consensus and how are we proving how naughty we are? And what better way to do that in an American context than to say ultimately what we need is a king. And part of that is because there is no danger of that ever happening. And so all you're able to do with that is cosplay and to say, oh, well, we're wanting to prove how really authoritarian we are. And it's a kind of anti-patriotism. But I think that's the point. When you don't have legitimate authority, the kind of authority that Mark One talks about, he spoke, taught as one with authority and not as one of the scribes talking about Jesus. When you don't have genuine authority, what you end up with is authoritarianism. You end up with, we have to have some strong boot on the neck in order to make things happen. That just isn't the way of Jesus. He's speaking with an authority that calls forward allegiance and uh, persuasion and actual heart change, not just raw power and coercion. And the longing, even just in these imaginary scenarios, for that kind of, we need a big, tough fighter who's going to make everybody obey, is another sign of a loss of authority. All right, so they're predicting 300 million people will be watching this on Saturday morning. Final question for the day, will you be among them? No, I'll, I'll watch it on YouTube later. <laughs> <laughs> all right well that's it for us this week thanks for listening we will see you next week the bulletin is a production of christianity today it's executive produced by eric petrick it's produced by matt stevens it's hosted by russell moore and mike cosper azure phelps is our associate producer the show is edited and mixed by tj hester graphic design by brian todd additional design by amy jones Music by Dan Phelps. Social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.